All right, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 again. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning, uh, we started a two-part series about living on mission. Living on mission. I hope that if you were here this morning, you enjoyed learning about mission from the Apostle Paul, from his own testimony of his time evangelizing the, the city of the Thessalonians, the city of Thessalonica. As we consider that, of course, Paul was a great example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 of living life on mission. Uh, he was concerned about the great commission of Jesus Christ, and so he made the comment that when he came to Thessalonica, the gospel not only came with words, but it came with three other things. Let's see if you can remember them. little pop quiz, okay? Uh, he says uh, that the gospel uh, came not only with words, but also with power, got one, and the Holy Spirit, and conviction, full conviction. We looked at that third quality this morning, we said full conviction might describe one of two groups of people, could describe the hearers in Thessalonica, the inhabitants of the city who turned to Christ, they were convicted regarding their sin, or better yet, it might refer to whom? Ah, gotcha. Yes, very good. Paul and the apostolic preachers of the gospel. So if you look in verse 5, I think he continues right along with that. As you look in your Bible, it says, But our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. For you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. He's talking about himself and the other people who planted the church at Thessalonica. You know how we acted. We had full conviction. We believed that the gospel would work. And so, uh, if we're going to live life on mission like the Apostle Paul, we need to be committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, using words, opening our mouth, knowing that God is going to use this for his honor and his glory. Uh, This evening, what I'd like to do is just continue the series, and I want to look at the new church that was formed there in Thessalonica, and I want to observe from them how they lived on mission as well. Although the church at Thessalonica had only been in existence for, uh, I, did, I did some math, did some research, I think it's probably only about one year maximum by the time Paul writes 1 Thessalonians. Although these believers in Christ had only been saved and has formed a church for maybe a year, Paul, when Paul writes this letter, there is much that we can learn from their zeal for Christ and their desire to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've been around as a church, Colonial Baptist Church, they tell me, for 39 years or so. I would have been two years old when this church was planted. Just, just throwing that out there for some of you who've been around since the beginning. 39 years or so. But I think there's a lot this 39-year-old church can learn from the one-year-old church in Thessalonica. You know, sometimes the greatest lessons we can learn are the, from those who don't really know much or don't really know better. I was uh, doing some listening this past week to a, uh, a video by uh, Tim Keller and D.A. Carson on revival. And uh, these two men I greatly respect for their understanding of the word, their desire to know Christ in the word. And, and, uh, and I also, I think I respect their uh, perspective on revival. 
They were critiquing some of the revivalism that's out there and some of the emotionalism oftentimes that people will portray as revivalism. But yet, I came down to a point in the, the uh, video, and you could, you could see this online, where Tim Keller was describing a little bit of what, uh, in a very humble way, he really didn't want to get there, it was later in the video, but he was describing a little bit of what happened when uh, God planted the church, Redeemer Church in Manhattan, New York City, which is where Tim Keller's a pastor. And he said that uh, he believed that there was a little bit of what he called revival dynamics going on when they planted the church. And he explained it this way. He said uh, the church grew in 1990 from zero to 1,000 people in a little under two years. little under two years. And often he's asked, you know, what happened? What did you do? What program? He's like, I don't even know what happened. As he described it a little bit further in this video, though, he said, well, from my perspective, uh, there was an amazing season of, of growth in the assembly, not just, you know, getting people from other churches, but new belie- believers coming to know Jesus Christ. So there's about a seventh-month period in those two years where God did some amazing things. And this is the way Keller explained it. He said, what happened was new Christians who had a lot of non-Christian friends started telling their, their friends about Jesus and people started getting saved and added to the church. He said, and then the other dynamic that occurred was we had a lot of what he called sleepy Christians. Sleepy Christians start looking around, see all these new people, new, these new believers coming to know, these new people at church, new people coming to know Jesus Christ, and it stirred them too. I think there's a lot sometimes that sleepy Christians can learn from new believers. As we look at this text, Paul describes a church on mission in three ways. We'll just go quickly through verses 8 through 10. Three ways, three characteristics of a church on mission. Uh, I would summarize verse 8 in this way. A church on mission shares the gospel. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, But your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. To observe the characteristic that I called uh, Church of Mission sharing the gospel, we must observe both the range and the impact of the testimony of this new group of believers in Thessalonica. First part of verse 8, I see the range of the Thessalonian community, their, their outreach. Uh, when uh, we see this phrase, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia. The first word in verse 8 is the word for. It could be translated because as well, and it gives the grounds for Paul saying that the church had become an example to other churches in the region. So he's saying they'd become an example since from them God's word was sounding out. I'm struck by this, again, in case we're you know, quick to dismiss, dismiss the testimony of a one-year-old church, one-year-old believers, this is the apostolic opinion of the church from the Apostle Paul in inspired words, no less. And so this is a model church, a model community of believers because God's word was sounding out from them. We look, he gives a little bit more specific direction in the locations again. He says, God's word was sounding out in Macedonia and Achaia. And I want to talk about this phrase a bit more. The words sounded out uh, mean that the word of the Lord was like a sound 
emanating in all directions from a source. So one Greek dictionary says about the, the phrase sounding out, like a sound emanating in all directions from a source. It's like a mighty trumpet blast or the sounding of thunder. Uh, G.K. Beale, a New Testament commentator, says it this way. He says, the word sounding out spoke of a loud, resounding noise, whether of ocean waves, howling dogs, the uproar of a crowd, or the repeated blowing of trumpets. Thus, without going any farther in the text, we find out that a mark of this church was that God's word, the word of the Lord, was blasting out into all Macedonia and Achaia. Now, this morning, I gave you a little glimpse of what Macedonia and Achaia were. They're the provinces surrounding the city of Thessalonica. Macedonia would be... uh, Upper Greece, and Achaia would be where Corinth is down in the south. But one of the things I'll add to that description is that the combined land mass of those two areas would be about 60,000 square feet or, or square feet, square miles <laughs> or so. Doing a little comparison for us, 60,000 square miles is larger than the state of Virginia, which is 42,775. It's also larger than the state of North Carolina. 53,879 square miles for those of you who care. Their testimony, uh, I'm sorry, the word of the Lord sounded out in an area larger than the state of Virginia or North Carolina. And that's saying something in the ancient world. Paul's saying the word of God trumpeted out from you into regions that large. But he doesn't stop with Macedonia and Achaia. The text goes farther when he says in the very next phrase, not only had the word of the Lord sent gone to those areas, but the faith of the Thessalonians spread out to every place. You see that in verse 8? The faith, their faith had spread out in every place. In other words, the range of their testimony and zeal for Christ seemed to be endless to the Apostle Paul. I mean, everywhere that Paul went, people knew full well of the lifestyle of the believers in this little Thessalonian church. Now, we might uh, try to figure out in the New Testament, this is the sort of thing I get into sometimes, try to figure out, well, you know, who might Paul have interacted with that would have known of the Thessalonian believers? I mean, if it had only been a year, where did Paul go after Thessalonica, and, 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 and how would he have interacted with some people? We know, in, you know, after his time in Thessalonica, those three weeks, he goes to Berea in Acts chapter 17. After that's done, he goes to Athens, and then he writes this letter from Corinth. So he's in those cities after Thessalonica. It may be that as Paul's interacting with new believers in Berea, Athens, or Corinth, that there are some of those believers who had traveled through Thessalonica on the Via Ignatia, the, the major artery, the major road that connected Thessalonica to those cities. And it may, believe, it may be that Paul was hearing from some of them about the amazing time he must have had in Thessalonica when people came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It may be as well that uh, sailors who would port in the city of Thessalonica would, would go into the city and they start interacting with this new group of believers in the house churches of Thessalonica. So Paul may have heard that way as well. Uh, perhaps if you look in Acts chapter 18, we, don't have, we, we won't go there necessarily. Perhaps Paul hears about Thessalonica and what went on in that church from two travelers who had made, them, made their way from Rome to Corinth by the name of Aquila and Priscilla, tent makers by trade. As Paul's sitting down to write the first Thessalonians, uh, Aquila and Priscilla are probably with him in Corinth by that time. And they had, they had if they went by land, they went, from, uh, they went from where they were in Rome 
down through Thessalonica to Corinth. And so perhaps he hears from Aquila and Priscilla as well that they had met the Thessalonians and they heard about the good things God had done. Most assuredly, though, their zeal for Christ spread, spread out from the city of Thessalonica through spontaneous mouth-to-mouth reports of the amazing conversion of these people. The excited transmission from person to person of the vibrant Christian faith of the Thessalonian believers spread out. And Paul, of course, knew that God had planted this church there not only only to reach Thessalonica, but also to reach this region for the cause of Jesus Christ. And God had placed this church in a very strategic area. I want you to look for just a moment. I don't have it on the map, but just at the north side of Macedonia there is where uh, the church of the Thessalonians would have been, on the north side of Macedonia. So we look at this geographic location I want us to stop and think about the fact that this was a real area. I, for years, I taught a class called the Thessalonian Epistles, and as, as I went through uh, 1 Thessalonians with the classes, I would I'd give them pictures of some of the landscape and the geography. I mean, this is a mountainous area, and there's roaring, rolling area. There's, there's waters there. There's, there's a port city there. There's, there's all of this stuff there, and I wanted them just to get a feel for, you know, this was a real city, a strategic location where God had planted this church. And so Paul planted this church to impact the whole region, Macedonia and Achaia, for the cause of Jesus Christ. If you notice this location, their location on this map, I also want you to consider this and think about our location. God has planted our church in a very strategic location for the gospel of Jesus Christ. One day, too, we will give an answer to the Lord for how strategic we have been in reaching this area and this region for the cause of Jesus Christ. I sure hope our testimony goes out, goes outside of and into Virginia Beach. I hope it goes to Chesapeake. I hope it goes to Great Bridge, to Greenbrier, to Portsmouth, to Norfolk, wherever you are located in your location. I, I pray it goes there. I pray it goes to, I, I hope Virginia can't contain Colonial Baptist Church's influence in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope it goes down to North Carolina, especially with some of you who live there. I hope and pray that God will enable you to reach your neighbors. And so I think it'd be good for us to stop and ask ourselves this question at this, at this time. Has God's word blasted out of this church into Virginia Beach, Chesapeake, Portsmouth, Norfolk, Greenbrier, Great Bridge, Moyoc, and farther? And I call you, especially as we consider mission, at the end of this week and beginning of next, this, next week, won't you work hard to join with others here and make God's name great in Virginia Beach? There's much that a 39-year-old church can learn from a one-year-old church whose testimony trumpeted out, it blasted out to these regions. And uh, it would be my prayer and desire that God would do that here at Colonial Baptist Church as well. So as we think of mission, we need to start here. We need to, we need to consider our own mission field, our own neighborhoods, our own workplaces. We need to pray that God will enable us to do excellent things for the honor and glory of his own name. Okay? Can I get an amen on that? Okay, I heard one before. As we continue, we see the range of their impact. <laughs> Just want to show you the the effect of their powerful testimony. Look at the end of verse 8. 
your faith trumpeted out in every place. Then he says, so that we need not say anything. The range of the Thessalonians' testimony was impressive, but the impact was incredible. Notice that Paul here states that he does not even need to say anything to others about the transformation that took place in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. I think here Paul's boast reaches a climax in his insistence that he and the other apostles and laborers who planted the church can add nothing to the community's reputation. And so Paul, the preacher, does not even need to open his mouth when people know about these believers. Their testimony says it all. This little group of new believers was a church on mission, a church who shared the word of the Lord all throughout Macedonia and Achaia. So you go down into verse 9, I see a second mark of a church on mission, and that is that they serve the living and true God. We'll go quickly through this verse. I'll just try to explain it to you as we go through, but there's a lot of good things in verse 9 as well. Look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Here the text starts out by saying, they themselves report of us. And uh, we're forced to try to figure that out. The phrase, they themselves, speaks of people from the region surrounding Paul and the Thessalonian believer, probably people from Macedonia and Achaia. And these people were giving reports to Paul about Paul and the apostles. They themselves report not of you, they report of us, Paul and the apostles. Specifically, I think the report was about how the apostles went about entering the city of Thessalonica and how the Thessalonians were saved as a result of their ministry. Now, more specifically, he says that they were, they're reporting of us and, and, and they're reporting of your genuine conversion. He says they're telling us how you turned to God from idols, Perhaps, in my opinion, there's no clearer statement in all of, all of the Bible of the meaning of conversion, being converted to Jesus Christ. And so you have these reports of the Thessalonians turning to God from the idols of their life to serve the living and true God. The words to serve here describe, I think, not only their initial commitment, serving Christ, but also the present character of their commitment to Christ. In other words, as a result of the changed direction the Thessalonian lies, they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Their conversion was expressing itself in their commitment to serve him in an ongoing fashion. Or you can say it this way, their initial faith in Christ led them to an ongoing commitment to serve God. And so a church on mission not only passes the gospel on, a church on mission serves the living and true God. There's a third characteristic I see in verse 10 I just want to deal with as well this evening that will be done. Verse 10, the third characteristic of a church on mission is that a church on mission expects the sudden appearance of the Son, or of Jesus. Look at verse 10. 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. In verse 10, we see the final characteristic of a church on mission. When we observe that the Thessalonian believers really thought that Christ could come back at any time. It had perhaps only been about 15 years or so since Christ left, and they expected him to come back shortly. It says, and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. Their view of the future salvation uh, for believers and the destruction of the lost was perhaps far more imminent than ours may be. Their horizon was different than ours. As one commentator said, they were far more fervent in their desire to see Christ than many Christians today. So as we're looking at verse 10 and we're understanding this church on mission, this new group of believers, this little band of believers in Thessalonica, We learn to be a church on mission. We must fully expect Christ to come back at any moment. And so with each one of these three points on mission, I could stop and have you ask yourself some questions. But on this one, I would ask you this question. Is is your persistent expectation as a follower of Christ, is your persistent expectation for the return of the Lord? I remember hearing my PhD advisor a few years ago when I was in Australia. You know, when they speak with an Australian accent... Everything sounds better. I could say the same thing. It means, you know, no one's going to listen, but when he talks, you know, it's like really cool. I won't repeat the Australian accent. His name is Brian Roster, and he was giving a sermon to student body at Ridley College, and he asked him a question, and then he made what I thought was a really powerful statement. He asked these young group of Christians, these young believers, if they were living in light of their future, Then he said, we ought to live in such a way that our future squashes our present. Our future squashes our present. That is, what he was saying is we should allow the possibility of the sudden return of the Lord to change the nature of our next few days and weeks as followers of Jesus Christ. You look at the Apostle Paul and the, the testimony of the Thessalonian believers here. They were waiting for the Son from heaven, whom God had raised from the dead. And that is a mark that we all need to see as well. And so these are the marks of a church on mission. Church on mission, like the Thessalonian community, must pass on the gospel. Church on mission, like the Thessalonians, must serve the living and true God and be committed to do so. And they must, and we must expect the soon return of the Lord. I think for us to live this way, it might not mean that we just add these three things to our current schedule. It's like, okay, Pastor Brent's challenges on mission. I need to, okay, let me just see if I can add this to my calendar. I think it's a little bit more than that for some of us. Now, maybe, maybe by God's grace, you're living in these three ways and you're passing on the gospel regularly. You're you're attempting to serve God very faithfully, very regularly as well, and you're looking for the Lord to return at any moment. I think for many of us, what what this will mean is that we, we sit down and we think about the nature of our life. 
Many of us in our culture and world, I feel that we're, we're quite busy. We're very busy. We've got all these competing agendas and things we're trying to accomplish. I think it'd be very good for some of us, even, you know, like Chris and I, you know, uh, parents of teens and kids, and they're running all over the place. I think it'd be good for us to sit down and think about this text and think about, okay, do, do I make it a regular priority as a follower of Jesus Christ to be passing on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not how can I work in handing a few tracks out to someone this week. No, it's how can I do this regularly, consistently? And it's, it's uh, you know, throughout the course of the week, do I think about the fact that the Lord could come back at any moment and does that change the way I live? Does it change the way I live? I think it would be a, a dramatic shift and change for many of God's people in American churches today. Do you pass on the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you expect Jesus to return? You attempt to serve the living and true God every day. This is life on mission, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And I think we can all learn from their example. As we close, I thought I would just take a few moments now and pray for our church as we anticipate mission conference. I ended the sermon just a little early so that we could spend a little bit extra time praying and asking God to do these sort of things in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is with much great anticipation that we look forward to this coming week where by your grace, as long as you do not return before, we look forward to the time where we will gather and we will focus on the needs in our nation and the needs in the nations. Lord, I'm so thankful for being able to step into a church like this who for years has been about taking the gospel to the ends of the world has been about trying to get people in unreached places, unreached places, places that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, when I inherited the office that I did, I found, I found resource after resource in my office and in the files and in, uh, on mission and our desire to think globally, to think about how to reach uh, people who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful for the heritage, but Lord, may we not be sleepy Christians. May we not just sit back and think about all the glorious mission conferences we've had in the past and how you've worked and how you've called out people from the assembly over the years to go to the ends of the earth to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we rejoice in that, but may we look forward with anticipation as a church that has the zeal of a new founded church or the zeal of a church who, who had... Uh, just heard about Jesus leaving and was anticipating his soon coming. May we have perhaps the wisdom and the theology that this church has been able to accumulate throughout the years, but may, may we also have the zeal of a new believer who longs to see their friends saved and the nations reached. And Lord, we know that that only can happen, that only can occur as a result of the Holy Spirit of God doing a, a fresh and new work in our assembly. Lord, we can do all of this planning, we can do all of this scheming and plotting about how to have a conference, how to have good speakers, how to have good preachers, 
But unless you do something in our assembly, they will just be, it will just be words. It will just be an event. It will have no lasting impact on us. Unless your spirit grips hearts and lives again. Lord, it strikes me that there are perhaps some of our own children who could hear the call to mission and ministry and desire to go for the first time. I pray, Lord, you'd work in their hearts. Lord, it strikes me that many of our teenagers who are now, uh, many of them away at this retreat, they may have been prepared by the Holy Spirit of God to be ready and open to hear the preached word of God this week. And perhaps some of our young people, our teenagers, Lord, will feel the call to take the gospel to the ends of the world. Perhaps there are singles, uh, perhaps there are young marrieds, uh, older uh, people as well in this assembly who need to consider the need to take the gospel to the nations. I pray, Lord, that you would do a profound work. But, Lord, we pray that you would not only do that through Colonial Baptist Church in other continents and places and corners and private areas, but that you would do that in Virginia Beach. Fathers, I consider our location. I remember months ago, I put up a map on this, this same platform where we saw 381 blue dots on the map that re- represented family units, people who've joined Colonial Baptist Church and are part of this assembly. Would you, would you stir within those people, within our hearts as well, the need to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to our neighborhoods and workplaces. God, again, this requires the Spirit of God. Perhaps there are some of us, Lord, who have grown sleepy. May the zeal of this new group of believers in Thessalonica jump across the pages to us, across the time gap, and may it stir us for mission. Lord, thank you for the picture of a church on mission. I pray that this would be true of Colonial Baptist Church as well. We thank you for this. We look forward with anticipation. And we know that the gospel still works. Lord, we pray that we would be faithful this week to proclaim it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.